Welcome back to the Richard Emerson podcast with great people, interesting topics, and good life. In this first episode, we're going to talk with author and family doctor James Willis in England about his book, The Paradox of Progress from 1995, and also how he sees the book in light of the new masterpiece, The Matter with Things, by British psychiatrist and author Ian McGilchrist. So thanks so much for listening and for tuning in and enjoy the show. So we came to this book through just getting to know James Willis in person and then uh, have had a great journey and learning from the book as it is um, somewhat almost prophetic description of technology and how this comes into the health sector and how it affects the life of a, of a general practi- practitioner as a doctor in England. And it also ties very much into recent brain research and science about the brain hemispheres and the left and the right hemisphere. So we want to welcome James to the podcast. Hello. Welcome. Hello, Richard. Yeah, lovely, <laughs> and, uh, lovely thank to you. be included. Thank you. Thank you so much for taking the time. And I thought we're just going to start with in talking about the book a bit in general. It's almost 25 years ago. So what are your thoughts about the book now and the things you try to express and how it's been received? Well, I mean, my feeling now is that the, the book as many writers say was the book was my baby and i'm i'm very proud of it and i'm still stand by every word in it which is a great thing to be able to say i think my starting point was that i had my one foot in each of two very different camps because i was a very very enthusiastic general practitioner family doctor in national health service in england Britain, if you like. Um, and I loved the personal, independent practice, my responsibility to the patient sitting next to me in surgery was my responsibility. And in those days, I had nobody telling me what to do. And uh, nobody under me, I was a true independent professional. And that was a, a, a great privilege and of great responsibility so i was i had one foot very very firmly in human human experience and that meant human in a in an extremely intimate sense uh, we knew we visited patients at home we knew we knew their homes and we knew their families so i had a very rich experience of what people are like and many people many many writers have been doctors and, and it's for that reason that we have a very rich experience of human life the other thing was that having been virtually enumerated at school and not being able to do sums and and having great trouble getting um, o-level maths i fell on computers and the computer revolution with enormous enthusiasm because i could find i could write a sum down and it gave me the answer and it was always right mm-hmm. and i became absolutely infatuated with computers and very excited by their potential for applications in medicine and particularly in general practice and i i threw myself into it. I got a succession of computers. I spent a lot of time learning how to use uh, in particular basic, the one of the early programs. And I wrote lots of practice program programs for the practice. Um, and 
uh, actually won a prize for uh, I won the annual prize from the from the uh, primary care division of the British Computer Society for um, for a, a program I wrote on uh, health screening in the in the health centre because I was in charge of the nurses in the treatment room and they uh, wanted to, to start doing health screening so I wrote a program and and the patients sat down and answered a questionnaire mm-hmm. so there so I got I was I I was also very interested and fascinated by computers, as indeed I still am. I I I love them. I've got lots of kit and 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 and, uh, very much enjoy using them. And so, um, a turning point was was the beginning of 1984, when we were all thinking about the future and what was happening. And I remember watching a BBC program about. On the eve of on the New Year's Eve, before 1984, and talking about the future, and I started a project then, uh, writing my thoughts. And I had I had an early word processor. I started just collecting observations, and noticing things which was I struck me as unusual in my in my practice, things which um, uh, didn't seem to add up. <clears throat> I uh, comparing my um, my memories of of what had happened with patients and my written notes, um, I began to realise that there were some very strange things the mind was doing and the way our memories were working. And I started making notes about this and writing it down. And <clears throat> as as time went by, having set out to write about the application of computers to general practice, I found myself less and less interested in the in the computers and more and more interested in the human mind mm-hmm. and i began to realize that the human mind was doing things which were not just a bit different from what computers were doing but were absolutely radically different and uh, and um and this is one of the ways in which Ian McGilchrist's book has helped so much recently, because it's put, it's given a reason for that, that they, the matter with things, the 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 kind of things which I was observing, um, were not actually things. I, I said, I said when we when we were trying to argue that um, some of the new rules and regulations which were being imposed on general practice from outside. Um, were <clears throat> um, they, they didn't understand what they were dealing with, and, and it was something radically different. I, was, I, I found one had couldn't argue against it. Mm. The the we, I said it was like using a, a battle between panzer tanks and butterflies, but mm. now I realise it was actually a a bigger difference than that because these weren't the one side of this; they weren't things at all. Yeah. They we were they were actually um, um, something mysterious going on in the mind, something much bigger than that, and so I, so that's um, it's that's where yeah. where why I started started writing. Yes, um, there's a couple of really nice quotes about exactly that that you wrote. Uh, just first, also it, the enthusiasm for technology also kind of shines through in the book, I think. And then I guess that points to the title in itself that the paradox of progress is that it's yeah it's potential and that we could have great progress with technology, but it also comes with 
risks and also problematic sides. Uh, but what you were saying now, um, so I have this long list of <laughs> favorite quotes from your book. Uh, so you had one with mind versus machines there. If our capacity for understanding this amazing ability, which we take so much for granted, to hold an imaginary model of the world, to constantly improve it by comparison with experience, and then by applying something which we call imagination, to test our future courses of action and future poss possible developments. So if this ability is the function of a machine, that machine is like no machine that man has ever created. So I especially like this because it, it ties perfectly into Ian McGilchrist. So I read The Matter With Things before your book. So I also kind of have that in the back of my mind all the time. Um, yeah. And you also have yeah, the purpose of the human mind uh, with uh, which the evolutionary forces of millions of years have operated to perfect is to model the world. Brains, so this is really, really nice. Brains only compute as a byproduct of their modeling, but computers only model as a byproduct of their computing. And that's also, yes. I think, very much the two hemispheres and, uh, and a very exactly, kind of precise exactly, description. Yeah. Yes, the, um, um, the doing sums and maths is no more purpose of the human mind than making a wake is the purpose of the of a, an ocean liner. That was another thing I yeah. put in the book. Mm -hmm. But um, um, so uh, one of my starting points was the, as I've indicated, was it was the attempts to control professional practice by people who'd moved on and were no longer doing the frontline job. Yeah. and were setting rules and regulations and, and uh, audits and checks. And although I could see the advantage, I was in some ways quite enthusiastic about it. I could also see the dangers. Mm. And, I was, and, and I had seen this happen to, to teachers. I think teachers were about 10 years ahead of us in this. Okay. And, and now the doctors have been subjected to this. And there's a lot of good in it. There has you can't you can't argue that there isn't good in it and and indeed I wouldn't want to, but it's taken away something precious and I I think one of the one of the problems besetting uh, the teaching and the medical professions at the present time is that the the independent professionalism has been taken away, mm -hmm. but um, yes I'm. Um, Yes, I used to say things like it's absolutely vital that the narrow perceptions of experts are not cast into tablets of silicon. Uh, sort of, um, rules we all knew in the old days were made to be broken, but now technology is being used to enforce the rules without fail. And there's a very grave danger that, they will be, they, that um, these rules will impose standard procedures and rigidity to an unprecedented extent. And I do think that's happened. Um, and I think it's very, um, very damaging. And, yeah. and I think it's done, and I think so does Ian McGilchrist. He, he sees. Yeah. Um, okay. I guess part of the problem is like to find the balance. Like if, if you have too, the problem is if you, have, if you have too much of it, but then if it's seen as a, like just as a clear positive, then people think more is better without any any sense of the balance. Uh, you had a sentence there about uh, that I also like, the ridiculous certainty, which is the hallmark of the narrow-minded specialist. <laughs> that 
Yeah, that really resonated with some experiences uh, in different kinds of jobs in the past. When uh, the, the more, more narrowed down a person is with their expertise, the more they feel in total control of that, but also of everything. Like it, it's a, it becomes a lack of seeing the bigger picture and the bigger context. And then that often amplifies a kind of uh, confidence that is misplaced well, uh, at I, times. Again, I have to qualify this because I'm a, I'm a great um, respecter of specialists. Hmm. I, I, I uh, as GPs, you had to know your limitations. And I had a very, very good working relationship with a whole range of, of specialists who, who I knew and they knew me and we respected each other. It's that mutual respect which is essential. Hmm. And I think it has tended to be rather one way. And I don't think some specialists have re- have have recognized that general practice has something special about it, uh, but not all. Mm. My um, my wonderful chief, at, uh, when I was my first house job at the Middlesex Hospital, Sir, um, Sir John de Barrow, who was one of the great doctors of his generation, he used to talk about GPs as proper doctors. And I think I know exactly what he meant, and, he, and, he, and that's what he did mean. Mm. So that's... Um, uh, mutual respect, balance. Yeah. You're absolutely right. Exactly. There's just one other. Um, there's one other quote I'd I'd like to. I, I've just found. Uh, so here we are at the crux of the paradox. We want to define clear solutions to the problems we can see in the world, but as we do so, we progressively destroy the essence of life itself. Mm. It seems to be an unavoidable rule that the precise definition of human affairs has the effect of killing humanity itself. And my work as a, as a GP was all humanity. Mm. It was, it was, um, it was steeped in, in, in the absolute essence of life. Mm. Um, and I, will, I will assume both this, the substance of your work and that you are relating to humans constantly. It's both that you're actually working with humans and the human nature in itself. Yeah. And, um, and seeing this progressively being this new tool, mm. the IT, information technology, computers, which all came in about 1980, 1980, 1990, it was new. Mm. I used to call it the new way of doing things. We we used to forget that that this um, um, this was radically different from the way humans have controlled the world and made progress from the beginning of time. And then suddenly, in little more than ten years, when I was started writing, we had a completely new approach, and it was impossible to challenge that it wasn't all progress. Mm. You couldn't, you just couldn't get any purchase on um, on people who who saw it as absolutely certain that this was the way forward and and it was better than what we'd had before and that it's okay bring it you know we need more we need more of this regulation and uh, i always had grave doubts i thought this is this is going the, the, there are things about this which are wrong it's going it's it's going too far we've got to be careful what we're doing we've got to we've got to let humanity um be the be the guiding thing that, that we should we should make sure that technology is the servant of 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 human uh, of humanity of ourselves not the master mm-hmm. and i do think that my fear that technology has become the master 
to some extent has happened and i think it's it's very very damaging mm. to society or the health of society yeah i think this is reflected both in the in the whole sort of the, it's not well it's a partly a problem of the success of the sciences over the last couple of centuries that yeah. it's become so much it has like this enormous um success and achievement and and progress so it's hard to argue against it so um then it's harder to to point to the balance that it's needed i i that was my background was science my father was one of the um team that started the atomic energy research establishment at harwell and um and he became the uh, uh, the secretary of the british association for the advancement of science no less so and i grew up with all our uh, our friends were all from the scientific establishment and i and i i i passionately believe that that uh, science is progress and uh, and has has utterly transformed life and we are we can't get off the we can't stop using science we we're riding the tiger of science and if we mm. get off we'll suffer the usual fate of people who get off tigers so we 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 we've got to use it but we've got to balance it with with keeping um, human nature and and common sense that yeah. that's that's the other thing the realizing that there's so much more in our minds the capacity of our minds is so much larger than we believe. well well i i spent quite a long time in the book arguing that it's actually not just bigger than we than we think mm. it's it's the crucial thing is it's bigger than we believe possible we have more in our minds than we we can, can think is possible mm. and and the way it's handled has is of a subtlety the memories and are retained and accessed and processed and gradually um um brought into prominence if they're important and sinking out it's all incredibly subtle and mm. everything is done by analogy um uh, it, i i another thing which which another conclusion i came to empirically uh, from my own observations is that the human mind is is a, is a, is a an analog machine not a digital machine mm. uh, which is comes back to something we were saying earlier and um and it it does everything by analogy everything in life is 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 linked to to, to everything else mm. um uh, one example is that um uh, you, you as a doctor talking to a patient you you can um you can bring the insights learned from driving your car along a winding road skillfully so that it goes moves skillfully through the curves to handling a conversation between a, a couple who are in having a marital difficulty mm. and and it, it's there's no way of making a computer understand that but yeah. most people will see what you're talking about when you when you say that there's there's a sort of skill in negotiating that in yeah. a gentle well, I would say understanding the complexities of human relationships is something that is beyond modeling for a computer, I would say, to a large yeah. extent. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but um, also a couple of thoughts, like uh, to slip it in there, like when you talk about memories and, and uh, like this, the, the vastness of, of our memories, it reminds me of Marcel Proust in Search of Lost Time, one of our favorite books. 
yes. as he writes 4,000 pages about this, how it works, how he, like little breaking of habits, especially is the key to opening up your memory. And then you, you, you can just delve into different parts of your life and it, there's an endless amount of, of, uh, uh, of, of hidden kind of stories and scenes from your past that come up to the surface again. And then for him, it's also a, a way of re-examining his own past and understanding himself and the path to becoming like a writer in the end. But it's, uh, it's one of the, the most beautiful uh, works of literature that describes the, the nature of memory. And he chose deliberately to write a novel about this and not prose philosophy, yes. uh, nonfiction. So, um, so that was one yes. thing. The other thing, look, just um, to bring in McGilchrist already a little bit, just to as an underpinning of some of the points you're making, because uh, this warning against too much technology, too much scientific thinking is... Um, well, in, in one way, the way McGilchrist describes this is that that is very much the nature of the left hemisphere as opposed to the right hemisphere. And one of the big risks with the left hemisphere is that it wants total control and that it it um, disregards things that it doesn't think is important and then it doesn't acknowledge the existence of it. So it becomes this kind of closed little hall of mirrors and and the model then usually eventually drifts into becoming less and less uh, relevant, not relevant, but less and less correct in terms of realities, and then you end up with bigger problems. So, just I see, I see this warning yes, everywhere uh, in your book. <clears throat> yes, um, I, I I've enjoyed uh, uh, more than enjoyed. I I, I read uh, Ian McGilchrist's first book, the um, the Master and His Emissary, with absolute. It was electrifying, mm. uh, I, I, and it, it it seemed to resonate with so many of the things which I I felt were important and gave new insights into them. This this left and right hemisphere thing, I, I had no I had no knowledge of at all, and it, it just seemed to make so much sense. And and now I've read this much larger and. Um, very quite different book it's saying it's it's building on the same um, same ground and uh, amplifying it but then it takes it further mm. and the this idea of the uh, of the matter with things is um has is has taken it much further and um is, is uh, reinforced and and shed new insight and he, the, the interesting thing is he comes from a completely different kind of approach he's an immensely scholarly uh, he's a, a real polymath he, he is a doctor of course he's a he's a psychiatrist but he's also an experimental psychologist and he's um he, uh, he he's done um research on the structure of the brain um and he's immensely knowledgeable about uh, the humanities art and literature and he brings all these stress things together uh um, whereas I was just doing it empirically from um, almost in a, a well a, in a naive way it mine was naive my near naive and I think the fact that we have similar um, conclusions from such different directions is, is a strength oh yeah um, and uh, perhaps um, more to what you were just saying I, I there's a long section in in Emma Gilchrist's final chapter 
the sense of the sacred, in which he confronts the um, the very dogmatic, certain uh, biologists like uh, Richard Dawkins and one or two, and a number of others. And R Richard Dawkins was one of my heroes. In mm. fact, he still is in some ways because he writes uh, the mo with extraordinary lucidity about um, evolution and biological systems. And and some of his uh, his book, which really is one of my absolute favourites, is um, is um, the Blind Watchmaker, mm. um, which is unequalled as a, as a description of of um, how evolution works. But in later years, he has he has he has become a uh, almost an evangelist of unbelief in anything else. He thinks everything can be explained mechanically. Every everything is a, is a, a, a system, and this links with people who think it's only a matter of time before we make computers which are which are identical to human minds, yeah. and. I don't believe that actually, and I don't think Ian McGilchrist believes that either. I think there are fund there are things which are fundamentally different. I, uh, that's one of the things I said. If we if we um, 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 if we really want something like a human brain, um, we know how to make more of them. We've got a, we've got enough of them already. But um, it's. The idea that everything can produce to systems, to formula, to digital form, which is basically how a computer works, of course, mm. um, I think is fundamentally wrong. Mm. And and this is at the very heart of what I was trying to say. The idea, the idea which which flooded into into medical practice in the in the eighties and nineties, that it could all be reduced to formulae, to systems, to protocols. Um, and if got them all perfect, um, wouldn't it all be wonderful? And that's the essence of progress. And I challenged that from the start. And I, and I think time has shown us how very, very wrong that was. But the belief still exists. And you do still get these fundamentalist um, uh, people who believe Everything can be reduced to mechanism, to mechanism, hmm. um, and uh, yeah. So go on. I, th I think some of that is sometimes expressed now with the the effort to reduce a metaphor in itself to something explicit. I mean, this is also everywhere in McGilchrist's work. But same same thing. If, if yeah. you make it explicit, you just take out one of perhaps thousands of meanings. So you're reducing it immensely by making it explicit. And you're losing everything else. So, the most like there's a compression in the metaphor in itself, an immense compression of meaning in a little story. Oh, like, absolutely, like Icarus flying too high is in, like it's, that it's story. an analogy thing. It links yeah. with everything else, and 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 your mind picks up all sorts of subtle connections, which um, some of which are subconscious and, and mm. are just feelings that come as to, mm. which are associated with it. Um, I was yeah. uh, one of um, my subtitle, which actually was never got into the book. I used to call it the importance of everything else. So the paradox mm. approach is the importance of everything else, mm. uh, and the everything is um, is we our minds select it out of out of take it out of context, and the way and the way that we concentrate on a particular idea, a particular thought. In my case, a particular patient. 
mm-hmm. uh, or a particular problem of a particular patient. And um, I was, because of my position as a GP, and, I, and we had, um, I knew how many patients I got. I had all their records on shelves in, 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 a, in, a, in a cabinet, in, in, in a big filing room. Mm-hmm. And I could, I could actually see how small, a, a patient came with a, with a, a, a tiny problem which was, it was important to them, but a small thing. And you've got, you've got a very graphic way of showing that, how, to, how you concentrate everything on that particular thing, an infected toenail perhaps, mm-hmm. and your whole mind concentrates on that. And then you, you actually have a graphic way of seeing what a tiny pointed part of your entire experience in your entire, and that actually is. So, I, um, so everything's important in context. And I, to start one of my chapters, because I used to try and start chapters by saying something easy to read and approachable, I, I told the story of, a, of, a, of, a, of a, an old lady who was sitting in my chair and I, and I was checking her blood pressure with a, with a rather old um, sphygmomanometer, the blood pressure machine. Uh, and um, they, as they get old, they sometimes start leaking a bit, and you have to pump rather hard to keep up the pressure. It was still accurate, so don't worry about that. But but you have to keep it pumped up, and um, and it was so there was uh, it was quite a battle to get a, to get this thing working for this patient. And uh, and I said as I, as it, as I was measuring her blood pressure, oh dear, oh dear, this poor old thing's nearly had it. And and of course, I was talking about the. Um, the machine mm. but uh, and uh, after a few moments of um, pause um, she, <laughs> she, she, she we both got it we both saw the double meaning and we both mm. laughed about it but um, so that was one of my little stories uh, told, Is, I must was say. that the same lady who you have a story about an, a person who uh, you don't have anything to give her but then she wants something oh that's right and, and then she says, well, just give me something. And you say, well, there's nothing I can do yeah. to help. And she says, well, and then she, she had something like, well, you're still, you're still a young doctor. You will learn. Like, yes, that's right. Just- I, I said, that, well, well I told, my predecessor was called Dr. Larkham. And, I, and one of his patients came to me with a pain. And I said, well, actually, you're the I'm afraid the parasitoma. I was young, idealist, very scientific young doctor. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm afraid your parasitoma is as good as anything else, and really, uh, um, anything else I give you wouldn't wouldn't work any better. I'd just go on taking that. And there was a sort of pause, and she said, hmm, "Dr. Larkin would never have said that. He he would always have um, given me something. He he knew I and I knew that it was really different, but um, he always gave me something." And then she's forced you're young, you'll learn. Mm. And now the interesting thing is that I've told that story to some very, very respected colleagues and they don't agree. They think I was right to be scientific and Mm. say what paracetamol did. And there is a divide. There is, there are two approaches and, and it's, there's a fundamental difference and it is almost an absolute uh, it's you don't you don't ever find agreement on that sort of thing. You 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 can all respecting each other, and I think it's important to have both sorts of people in the world. But it is a very fundamentally different approach. What is an interesting, much fuzzier? It's an interesting topic because I can see the argument that if you give, I mean, you you're supposed to be honest and authentic and yep. and realistic. So if you 
say yeah. that try this it might help and you know it's not true that's you're not supposed to do that as a doctor I, it's it is so, a great dilemma how yeah. how how do you square the certain fact that that a doctor can put his arm around somebody's shoulders and say now come on my dear you'll be this mm. isn't too bad you'll 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 pull through you'll be all right even when even when some of that is just putting your personality into the patient to 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 give them the old fashioned healing and make yeah. them feel better because of your because of the strength of your your role and your personality exactly. and there's a very very real thing but if you're if you're a, a cold scientific approach you might not be able to say that you mm. might not be able to say that you might say well actually i'm afraid there's all these sorts of things that might go wrong and and you've um and of course this is something which is changing because people doctors are feeling compelled to say that sort of thing now mm. and 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 again there is no answer to this you can't write a, a dilemma formula. you can't that, you can't write a rule which will put which will answer that, this in every case I mean, you've you could, got to yeah, yeah. Yeah, we might you want to leave a, it to human to person to common sense. Well, there's, there's yeah. a conflict of: Do you want the, the person to feel better, or do you want to be 100 honest? And yeah. which which one? What's what is your purpose as a doctor in that that situation? Yeah, you want to to help that improve their health with a little bit of a white lie or not? I think when it gets complicated is when you're when you're just protecting yourself from possible. Mm. there's a new thing which is we, we really didn't worry about litigation it was it just didn't arise we were um we were controlled by the general medical council who were very draconian you know, over the things they were worried about which was um, um they would tend to be less worried about medical um competence than they were about um, um sexual behavior and so mm. on which which they were very hot on which is quite correctly of course because it, because you're, you're in a very privileged position you mustn't abuse it mm. but um but that was the virtually the only control on us and and colleague pressure yeah. but um we have to it's interesting nowadays, what you everybody's met. worried yeah but the it's interesting the the what you brought in about your position and your authority and the role as a doctor it's uh, a bit on the side but it's um kind of in ancient rituals especially kind of uh, rites of passage or kind of uh, maturation rituals you have some components are essential and one of them is that you have to be acknowledged by someone you uh, an elder person who you respect in some some yeah. fashion and if they give you some kind of acknowledgement that psychologically changes you forever. That that's a necess necessary component of yeah. having a transitional psychological kind of click in your mind, and it comes from that you actually put the authority into that person and you respect them truly. If not, it's not going to work. It's 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 a it, it, there is a sort of sh a shamanic sh yeah. shamanic <laughs> aspect to the role, and and I mean one one. More illustration is that on the day that a medical student qualifies he changes from being the worst insurance category for medical for, for, sorry for for motor motor insurance to, mm -hmm. to the best mm -hmm. and that is and, and he has stayed the same person he's probably driving yeah. in just the same way yeah but you take you take on a sort of mantle of authority yep. uh, which gives you real power oh yeah and there's no question it gives you real power mm. the uh, you have the power to help people Yep. And and some of that 
you, you can use being scientific, being well-based, showing patients that your, your knowledge and your skill is based on, on sound medical practice and science. Mm. And that has to be part of it. But there are times when you have to put something else in as well and, mm. and use your personality and your reputation and the fact that they've known you for years and the fact that they respect doctors. Mm. Um, you sometimes wonder why people respect doctors, but, they, but there is, this, <laughs> is, the, there is this, this role in society which, is, which is, uh, has existed in, in practically every society in, in history and in every part of the world. There, there, is, there is a role, and we haven't, we're combining it with, with science, mm. which is quite a difficult act to pull off. Yeah. Um, because we have to say when we're not sure about things. If you say, mm. um, you can't just tell everybody that you've got the answer, this, do this, and you'll take this particular thing in this particular exact way. And you, okay, if you haven't got the, the, uh, the eye of Newt on the full moon, then it's not going to work, is it? So you yeah. go, that's why, it, you know, you've yeah. got to get it. It's, um, it's a bit, I mean, I think many walks of life, you have this um, expectation that you play the part and you just have to, you just have to accept that people project the role into you and you have to acknowledge yes, that they interpret you, you from you that through that filter. And if you try to level to say that you're just an ordinary person sideways with them, it's not going to work. It's going to be this friction and resistance. So it did put up a, a barrier, it put up a social oh, yes. barrier to some oh, yes. extent. Yep. Um, I used to be very uncomfortable going into the town on my half day. You know, I just, I just, um, I never go into a pub. Mm. Um, and when you retire, you, although you retain some of it, um, I still live in the same town, but, um, and I meet, meet old, old patients, even 20 years after retirement, I meet old patients very, very often. And, and there's a tremendous bond of, uh, affection where it's, it's lovely. Mm. Uh, all, uh, and, um, but it was, it was a very. I, I can see why some people find it very oppressive. Mm. I used to. I used. To, I tried to play the guitar. At least I did. I used to play the guitar. Took it up as one of my midlife hobbies, and uh, I found I couldn't tune it when I was on duty. Uh, if I was off to you, even no, on a on a on a day when I was off to uh, when I was off duty, because I was on, I was on one in four for years, night and day. Mm -hmm. um, one in four weekends and one in four nights in the week, and um, and you even when it was quiet, it was sometimes um, because if what? it's only one, if you're on one in four, you're only four times as busy as you'd be if you were doing looking after your patients all the time because you're looking after four the patients of three others. Um, even nowadays, doctors are on for 20, 30, 50, 100 other doctors. Mm. And they and when they're on, which isn't isn't very often, they are so, so why do you think very you, busy. Why do you think you couldn't tune the guitar? Oh, but I, I don't know. But was it like something, your, your, your something, fo focus? In, something interfered? I was in a different mode. Yeah. Different different mode. It really fundamental. Um yeah. So, it's interesting. So I just uh, yeah. yeah. I mean just being the, in the frame of mind. I had this is way on the side, but I had uh, I was reading Aristotle, like going through his collected works, and I had two weeks where I couldn't listen to music 
this has never happened to me any other time in yes. my life because it did something with my brain that just blocked yeah. out music. And I think it was my, my hypothesis is that music is, um, it moves you emotionally a lot. And then yes. you come in a frame mm -hmm. of mind where you need to have some, like you have a focus or you have to, to maintain a stability or a certain mode. And then you would reject anything that kind of moves you spiritually or emotionally. Think, Maybe uh, that could be a part of it. I think you're someone who feels, uh, has a very, um, is very responsive to to that sort of thing and i i don't think it's quite the same i mm. i think my uh, my problem with tuning guitar when i was on duty was that you you're constantly aware that you might have a phone call the next moment all the time yeah, you yeah. could and it could be something could be something some desperate situation you know you could be suddenly called out to somebody who was who was bleeding to death or something and um and as as you anybody can imagine uh, even if that doesn't happen very often it's you know it's possible mm. where uh, and um uh yes you just that feeling of not knowing what could happen was mm. was quite oppressive and it stopped it stopped normal things normal responses happening as they do, as they would otherwise would and i think I guess, that's what yeah i yeah, guess if, if you're on on guard in the military camp during the night for yeah example, it's similar you're, you're not going to yes. start sitting down and playing music for well, well I, i'm sure it would affect different people in different ways but yes it's it's in a way it's a little like that mm. uh, i'm not saying for a moment it's anything like that um, that amount of pressure i wouldn't have been any good at that at all but um no it was a constant feeling of of um that's something could happen any moment yeah mm. so uh i have a couple of other uh, excerpts where, which i liked it ties into something you said before about like useful things for being a doctor so the quote is this uh, many of the skills i developed doing things like mending a lock digging the garden sailing a boat acting as a governor at a local school singing or even sitting doing nothing on a summer day all are applicable to making me a better doctor sort of the yeah. things that you made me think of earlier um in terms of just uh, yeah how many uh, unscientific things in the sense that goes into becoming yes. better at your craft uh, and also you had this um we talked about earlier about the the conclusion in some of McGilchrist's work and then your book uh this really made me laugh when i was reading it this is chapter 11 when you start summing it up a little bit so we use the word unbalanced to describe an insane mind Thus, the accumulated wisdom embodied in the very language we speak acknowledges the fundamental role of balance in the definition of sanity. So when I say that the common mind of our society is unbalanced, I am making a very serious diagnosis. I am saying that the common mind of society is to some extent insane. But that is what I do say. <laughs> and that's... Yes, yes. I, I, and indeed, and that is one of the things that resonates so strongly with Ian McGilchrist. Hmm. Incidentally, you can see that I was much more articulate um, writing than I am talking, because that's why I, um, I uh, every every word in that book was written 10 times, probably over a period hmm. of 10 years. It is very some, beautifully written. Some bits were... Um, were written straight off. In fact, the, the little story about mending a lock, I did write off more or less straight off. Um, and it is one of the most popular bits in the book. A lot of people refer to that. Uh, and, it has um, a nice touch how you're mending yeah. that lock makes you happy. 
every time, every day, and for months and months. List. And I can, yes. I can relate. <laughs> and it wasn't on my list of jobs for that day. It was just something I happened to do. Exactly. And, uh, and um, yeah, so that, so mm. that worked. Um, and the, another story people, uh, people all remember is the story about, um, uh, our, we had a Morris Minor, a thousand, and the instruction handbook told us that we, had, we should, every day we should check the, the radiator, tires, lights, um, and, uh, and uh, several other things. And I said, I couldn't work out quite what to do. I just, I thought probably the lights, it would be right. You probably had to check that they worked, but you could just make sure sometimes that they didn't, they were, none of them were missing. But the mm. thing that really worried me was, was what do you check the tires for? And I, and I, um, uh, and I had found out that actually you were supposed to check for embedded stones. Mm. And my problem was that at any particular time, three quarters of the circumference of the tire is either resting on the ground or hidden in the wheel arches so you had so i would then as a preliminary every day because this is what it says in the manual you have to roll the car forward quarter of a wheel circumference go out and get any stones out move forward again uh, and do it again and then do it again and th and then do it again mm. and and i call this a stone check and i said never uh, no one will be mad much enough to do it but they go on putting it in the manual and mm. people think that they really ought to do that sort of thing to do it properly and and life's full of that sort of thing and you can't you in you can't put it all together into a world that works hmm. or a life that works and and this is what this is what happens when people from outside tell you how you really ought to be doing and and gps are in a very particular situation because they're dealing with everything hmm. and everybody has a reason why you could do that bit better or how you should do this bit or how you should be in on a a special course on this particular bit that they're interested in but you it's like having um um like being the focus of a of a lot of different searchlights each person directing their searchlight thinks that it's very important because it is very important but when you're at the middle and all these beams are coming out from all directions mm. it's overwhelming and you can't do it all and you have to make it you have to make a compromise and it comes down to using your judgment and using your common sense. Mm. And those are human human abilities which can't be computed. Exactly. And that's what I was saying, really. I have two two last ones from your book, and then we can talk uh, a little bit more about McGill, Chris. Just, uh, you had one very nice quote here about technology as well. We need to keep technology in its proper place as the servant of the individual person and not the master to make yeah. use of its enormous potential to enhance life, whilst protecting ourselves from its enormal, enormous potential to diminish and imprison us. That also really resonated with yeah, kind yeah. of finding and the of balance. Course that, and so, uh, that servant and master is tapped straight into McGilchrist, because um, this, I published this book in 1995, having worked on it, as I say, since 1984, so 1995. And then McGilchrist's first book came out in 2001, I think. Mm -hmm. um, and he was he was suddenly there as servant and master. And, mm -hmm. and the master, um, the servant usurps the master. Yes. 
in in his book that's what the, that's what the, the master and his emissary is all right all about the 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 servant thinks he thinks he's got all the rules he's got all the all the um techniques that the um the master has developed to make a successful kingdom and he goes off and tries to apply them and the whole thing falls apart because he's not he he's not got the the broad overall wisdom yes um so i i saw that link and that um you yeah, that, have... i agree with you that that, that that quote you just read was my my final my final yeah. summing up point really yes yeah you also had this the last sentence now that uh, that you had uh, unless we find a way of giving the corporate mind of society the equivalent of common sense because not yeah. made me smile because that is in some ways the challenge of or making it balanced is to give yeah or this this technocratic system modeling to give how do you give that a a common sense, which is, I think most people would acknowledge is necessary to have, I guess in some, some sense, in some situations you have this with, um, like in, in, uh, in a court, you have the law and then you have the jury and that's how you balance yeah. the strict Good example with yes. some human judgment, common sense. You don't leave it to a computer. Yeah. yeah. To avoid yeah. the extremes at least. <laughs> some yeah um but then if we move on now to to mcgilchrist so uh i i really like what you just said and then also how that uh it, it's all almost a it's not a paradox but it's um there's there's a certain nice touch to how mcgilchrist is using the scientific language and the scientific thinking and the left hemisphere thinking to uh, expose the limitations of the scientific thinking Yes. So in that sense, I think it's a it's a tremendously important work that he has done uh, over 20, 30, 40 years to prove to the left hemisphere on its own terms that it has limitations that are sometimes uh, could be very dangerous as well. It could be huge risks to it. And there's inevitably yeah. it will go wrong if, again, the, the metaphorical servant or emissary would are in is in charge all the time yes i'm quite surprised that he doesn't say anywhere um he doesn't compare the right left hemisphere approach to a com computer digital approach he doesn't ever it doesn't ever seem to say that mm. but i think there i think it's it, and it may not be exactly what he means and he might well question it but uh, it does seem to give a good idea that if you that the left hemisphere measures everything quantifies mm -hmm. everything puts it in words mm. and what he's trying to do is to say something which ultimately can't be put into words and he does it superbly well but you can't uh, and he says and other people have said you can the book can be dipped into you can read a chapter but i i don't think it really should be i think he's structured it in such a way that he takes you through the whole argument in a an incredible very very lucid very readable way hmm. and everything he says is is backed up with exhaustive research yeah. and a hugely authoritative support for everything he says and you need to follow you need to go on that journey yes. to when, to finally reach the final paragraph chapter which is almost book length in its length in itself mm. and i i approached having been such an enthusiast for the first book and um having revered ian mcgilchrist uh, throughout um 
the subsequent 10 years, I, um, I was nervous mm. that, he, that it might not live up to expectations. He might, I didn't know whether he'd completely lost it, you know, mm. go and shut himself up in sky and, and work by himself. Well, it's not quite literally, he did have contact with lots of people, but, but he was basically there. He wasn't in a university, wasn't in any academic department. He was working by himself doing mm. his own research. And suddenly he brings forth this, this creation. Mm. And what's it going to be like? Is it going to, I mean, I got to the, to read the final, opened, began to read the final chapter, wondering, well, has he got anything left to say? What's he going to say? And the answer is a resounding yes. Mm. It's hugely, hugely important. And it's, it is, it is new. And it's, um, there's some very fundamental things in the book, which I um, take a lot of grappling with. But I mean, one of the fundamental things, which is why he has to justify this so carefully, is that our belief that um, consciousness arises from the brain, from the, from the system, if you have a sufficiently sof sophisticated mechanism, it will become conscious. Mm. He says, and he quotes many, many authorities, including a lot of um, 20th century physicists, um, to show that, in fact, consciousness comes first. Mm. And, uh, and this, is, this is an incredibly radical thought. It was completely new to me and, uh, and takes a lot of getting your head around. But that actually consciousness is in everything. Mm. And, and without consciousness, nothing else would exist. And that is, that is that's what, only one of possibly the most radical thing. But he, but that, it, it, uh, he, he makes a very, very powerful case that that is, that is almost, almost established now. Certainly physicists believe mm. it to be true. Um, I think in some ways I, I agree with um, that if you want to read the matter with things, you, uh, I think at least the first part, it's divided into three parts. I think the first part is essential to, to have some understanding, which is just the neuroscience. It's just a hard science about yeah, the brain yeah, and how it works. Correct. The part two and three, I think you might, you could jump a little bit into the topics you're most interested in. Uh, but you, <clears throat> if you don't understand the, the basis of how the two, like, again like the, the newer science of it then then it will be it's, it would sound more like just making a lot of claims but if you know the, the science it's you can read it differently so, but i think the last chapter is a whole separate <laughs> part of, yes. of the work and uh, mm. because then he what he in my view what he does is he leaves the territory of the left hemisphere and it's almost the only place in the book he does that the rest of it is for the most part, like the heavy foot is in the left hemisphere, in the scientific, rational, um, yeah. kind of research-founded uh, areas, topics, and then he moves into the right hemisphere at the end. And that's a whole different world. But he does it through carefully walking to the very boundaries, the edges of the left hemisphere, and then he goes slightly over, and then he goes back again. And I think it's, um, it's wonderful, and I think it's uh, masterfully done. Um, well, it's. Uh, I've, I think I, I'm 
taking a while to come to terms with it because his um, um, this idea that the the world is a mechanism mm. and that um, there's nothing beyond that is tremendously seductive and tremendously powerful mm. and has been very very dominant and it, and it, it troubled me and and influenced me hugely but he's saying that that's not true that there's something which is far which is fundamental which is far beyond that and uh doesn't and he he spends some time saying it doesn't matter what you call it really um he <laughs> said if you can you, you can you can call it he says in the end probably the best the, the easiest word to use is god mm. but that carries all sorts of baggage in all sorts of ways. What he's really against is fundamentalism. Mm. And, and that's one of the links. He's against fundamental um, scientism, mm -hmm. people who are sure that science has all the answers, like Richard Dawkins, with, uh, bless him, mm -hmm. uh, or, but, and people who are taking, uh, think that religion has all the answers. And religion is, is so certain that if you mm. don't believe my sort of religion, I'm going to kill you. Mm. And uh, it's uh, your, your life is you know you're not you're not a real person you don't have any right to be to to and those two are, are parts of the same thing yeah they're not they're that's, not the opposite they're not opposites they're they're the same thing that's one of and, the stunning parts of the book when you suddenly he he describes this scientifically uh, they are both yes. versions of the left hemisphere um, fundamentalism or extremism or containment yeah. within itself. It, everything becomes literal and anything that doesn't fit your little model is just this it, like discarded as non, non-existent and you get also very aggressive this is an important point that most yeah. of the emotions are in your right hemisphere but there's one emotion in your left hemisphere and that is aggression so yes. if anything threatens your model of the world your logical construct of the world you would react with aggression and it explains many times people's behavior. If you like, if you see yes. the phrase like uh, that poking, is very, it is poking, very fascinating. Poking at the because axioms. He, yeah, one of the things he, he does from quite an early stage is to draw very powerful comparisons between between three things: um, states of um, hemisphere damage. So people who are um, let's say have their hem right hemisphere damage so that their their right hemisphere deficit um so there's that that state the kinds of things that people the kinds of um, behavior and changes that people have when they have that damage in their brain or indeed you can you can damp it down with um uh, artificial techniques and produce the same effect temporarily so that's one thing and then there is there is mental illnesses such as schizophrenia in particular mm. which again have extraordinarily similar patterns of yes. change which he knows all about because that's his field or one of his fields and the third thing is modern i have to say western culture society scientific the um, enlightenment i always i always saw myself as someone a man of the enlightenment mm. And there's such so much good in it. This is the thing again and again. There's so much good in it, but it's not the whole story. But the people is, who think it's the whole story are the problem. It is the balance issue again and again. So a yeah, bit of enlightenment balance. is fantastic, hundred yes. percent. 
is not working. Exactly, exactly. But it is. But you, I, mean, um, yeah. I suspect this is why it's a, this whole thing appeals to so much to you, Richard, with your extremely fascinating knowledge of um, of classical literature and Dante and um, the, the classics, the mm. ancient classics. That um, he sees. He's, he go, he sees wisdom in in this thing, which is yes. which is still valid today and and very fundamental. Um, well, and- I, was, I, I was thinking about that just a few minutes ago with with Dante. So, but first, when you said that um, the the view that is powerful with uh, kind of the scientific left hemisphere view is partly because it gives a feeling of control. So it, it boosts your confidence and it boosts your well yeah. well being because you feel that you have f- full control over every little detail of everything. Uh, but the in- interesting thing is then with Dante and and the whole medieval period is that humility is the m- most important virtue for learning about the world for knowledge. You need the humility, and that is in some sense yeah. one of the meanings is just scale back your left hemisphere and your your feeling of total control. Well, it, it will block you. I think that humility is so important. You're quite right. And I think that's one of the characteristics of, uh, of again, general practice, because you have mm. to be humble. You have to know your limitations. The most, uh, the only really dangerous GPs are, are overconfident, well, negligent, but but overconfident. If you, mm. if the worst thing you can do is to give false reassurance, tell people that they're all when they're not, mm. and, and to, to deny them passing on to proper property so you need to you have to have humility and you need you have to have the balance um, uh, between the two yes that's right and, respect and, all, and just all these so things a big part of the challenge with some of these topics is that the words like how we perceive the words in a modern context is so different from an, a medieval or an ancient context so people many people would think humility is being like having low confidence for example or being yeah. insecure, but you can be very oh. upright, confident, uh, happy with yourself, and at the same time acknowledging your limitations as, a, as yeah. an act of humility. So that's it's uh, a very, used, it should be a positive uh, word. But this is another example because I used to have a shelf of textbooks behind me in my consulting room, and I would reach back and pick something up and show it uh, and discuss it with patients and look things up. Particularly, um, the British National Formula gives you the details of drugs and doses and things, and I'd look things up. Now, some doctors think that's a sign of weakness, hmm. and I saw it as a sign of strength. And that's another, and I'm sure that I have no doubt the patients respected it. So. That's another example mm. of the two approaches. But you were saying about the certainty, and, and certainty is extremely powerful mm. and very seductive. And that's what's so telling about the the new the latter day Richard Dawkins and his fellow thinkers. Mm. They're so certain. They're mm. so confident. Uh, I believe he says, and I believe it's true, they actually call themselves the brights. They, they have yeah. this, this extraordinary nick, nickname for themselves, the Brights. They're the clever people. They've got the answers, and, and they're, they're the future. That's a very bad and historical I precedent is, for, I, for those labels. I think labels. it's fascinating because, um, uh, because the, classic, um, Lucifer, the classic Bright is Lucifer. Yeah. The extraordinary thing is that they actually have this nickname for themselves, the Brights, which shows an extraordinary arrogance mm. and that and that certainty arrogance 
Um, and it is characteristic of the sort of, I'll tell you another person who was, who I was pulled, another hero of mine, the um, Jonathan Miller, who was a, who was a, a very, uh, he was a doctor originally, a wonderful um, the, uh, director of plays. He was a polymath. But he, I remember him talking about religion once, and he was absolutely certain that that, that there were that everything was mechanical and there was no that we didn't need any of this. And his certainty was, uh, I, I found it extraordinary for a, for an intelligent man. I thought he, if if people like him and Richard Dawkins, highly intelligent people, can't see that if there are things beyond science. Mm then science has nothing to say about them. Mm. And I, that seems to me so, so obvious. But um, Especially when you have those two topics, with which is consciousness, what is consciousness, and you have the question about beginnings. So you can say Big Bang, or you can say the Big Bang comes out of a quantum wave flux soup. But you still yeah. have the question, where does that come from? Was that there forever? Or did it arise yeah. at some point? So you have like at least two very big questions where science doesn't have any full explanation. And it's kind of a, like to, to put those two issues aside and just focus on the rest and say, well, this, here we have total control. But you have control over the model. It's not the reality. So it's, No, exactly. Yes, the man. Yeah. The, it, but it also yes, models, say, models are very convenient. You can hand, you can do things with them. You can manipulate. You can measure them and count mm. them up. But but uh, reality is not like that. And that's that's really. Um, and the brain, the right hemisphere, is is there to model reality, mm. and that's what's so fabulous. And it was that was what my experience in my practice and was giving me some little insight into that it was so much more than than we thought it was there's so yeah. much more than 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 you can measure that you can quantify and you can prove but as you say the certainty is extremely seductive and very powerful mm -hmm. and you can't and it's very hard to argue against it because they use tools words logic which are which you you need something different to answer it and it yeah. doesn't have the same force and that's what that's what I think Ian McGilchrist has managed so triumphantly. Yeah. But um, and what I also love about what he puts in his work and what you alluded to here is that you have the warnings against this everywhere in the big traditions for for millennia, like against yeah. feeling superior, feeling total control, defining yourself like kind of the like the bright ones there. Like this is uh, yeah. It's it's in, in so many different mythologies as well this is uh, seen as one of the biggest traps for for both a well, person and for a culture as well that's what i think is so ironical about choosing to call themselves the brides because the um in i, I it actually inspired me to to have a look at um at uh, paradise lost because mm. he talks about milton and 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 uh, you know henry higgins in my fair lady says we are the nation of of shakespeare and milton i thought well i, well, no, I, I ought to read a bit of milton then mm. and um and 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 the bright is lucifer yep. and lucifer is the fallen angel and he is so he he is so confident so overconfident he is the most beautiful and, most intelligent of them all yeah, and and he falls, and he and he actually becomes um, 
well, correct me if I'm wrong, when he becomes Satan, doesn't he? Yeah. yeah. Yes. And I mean, surely didn't they know that when they when they mm. chose this name for themselves? And well, Lucha is is light. Lu Lucifer is the it's in the in the etymology of the word itself is is light. Light, yes, yes. Yes, so, uh, yes. Light, light up a Lucifer to light, strike up a Lucifer to light your fag. Yes, yeah. it's, um, um, just to add one little thing when you, when you said um, uh, the the point about consciousness and what comes first and what McGilchrist kind of moves towards in some parts of his book, um, there is um, there is a part of Dante and the Paradiso which is. In the begin, the portal into paradise, in some sense, is the moon, which is kind of the, the the first sphere he comes to. But it's it's a very kind of cryptic, enigmatic description. But a part of it is that he, in my view, he tries to explain how to relate to the world as material and spiritual at the same time. And if you think of spiritual as the consciousness, then so there's a there's a challenge in trying to understand that these things are two different realms but they are they are united as he would say not directly connected so i mean this is a bit heavy argument to try to kind of make no, succinct, but, but, it's, but it's a bit like if you say that if it's like the consciousness is is everywhere you can think for some people this is helpful i've noticed you can think about for example mathematics and numbers like the concept of number five or the concept of a circle like where is that concept spatially and then it doesn't make any sense but you can say it's everywhere so if you go to the neighboring galaxy is the is the concept of a circle still there and how far away from you is it that's at least yeah. one way to try to understand that the spiritual or the consciousness might be everywhere it's not contained in a box to say oh in this yeah. box you have consciousness it's like well the consciousness is a separate thing but it's united and that it's kind of it's a relationship it goes back it's every, to, yes and that's it's different is that's matter the thinking with, yeah the matter with things is i think i think his right left brain hypothesis has given us an extremely powerful explanation hmm. it's more than an analogy because yes. he says at the at the end of his master in his embassy, he says this may be an analogy, but I think it's a useful one, and I think it's and for, if you want my opinion, I don't think I think it's more than an analogy. I think I think it's more, and and to have the two halves of the brain equipped to to deal with these two different ways of of yes. dealing with reality, yes. and and the and the extraordinary thing which he brings out so clearly is that they are connected by the corpus callosum in the brain. Mm -hmm. But 80% of the fibers in the corpus callosum are inhibitory. Yep. So the two are deliberately kept separate because they are incompatible. Mm. And that's and this this what the whole point of all this is that the two ways of looking at things are so different that they're actually incompatible. They're not the same sort of thing. They're not yeah. then one of them, not only they're not, not the same sort of thing, but it isn't a thing at all. It's it's something other than that. And and that's what's so mysterious. Yeah. I just hope I just hope I, uh, people will read this book mm. and will learn from it and will be prepared to change. And because it's, I think it's so fundamental and so important. Yes, exactly. And that's I think to some extent, the, at least it could be helpful to think of the two hemispheres as uh, 
modeling the material and modeling something more like the spiritual as well. So a part of what Dante is saying could be applied to how you could be able to use both parts of your brain at the same time and then making them work in harmony together. And that is both the balance and the harmony and the cooperation between the two brain hemispheres. That also, in my view, lies very at the bottom of the Renaissance in itself. That when these two things work together, and this is also a point that McGilchrist is making, then you can get this extraordinary uh, growth and explosion of creativity and beauty and wisdom. And, and just like a, <laughs> I'm a careful with the word progress, but you can get at least like a, a productive, yeah. well, healthy I, way. Well, when I when the book came out years ago, I um, I, I was asked to talk to a lot of meetings and. And I used to have a slide with the, the Colossus of Rhodes, mm. with one foot standing in science and one foot standing in humanity, yeah. and uh, that was the same thing again. Yes. And I thought, I thought that we, as in a way, the last professional generalists, we were. It was our job to be interested in everything and yeah. to have a bit of knowledge of everything and to know what and to know our limitations and everything. So we had, we were, we had a. Uh, but so we had that one foot doing that professional humanity uh, journalism, but also a foot in science. We had to be scientists. Modern, a modern G, a modern doctor has to be a scientist because otherwise you're you're taking away your your main therapeutic mm. uh, uh, technique. It's, every, you know, it's the main thing you do for people. Exactly. But, but there is more as well. Yeah. So uh, before wrapping up, just I have one last uh, quote from your book here. Uh, An alternative objective, which is currently unfashionable, is to be a well-rounded, well-balanced, broadly educated, and complete human being, a so-called yeah. Renaissance man. <laughs> so that, yeah. that yeah. Kind of ties up so much of what we talked about. Um, so just for the last, uh, last few minutes here, um, if we try to step back from all of this a little bit and just look at the positive things, like both the some things you discovered through writing a book and and found maybe support for or new discoveries through McGilchrist um, about the potential for 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 real progress and not not the paradoxical version. Um, do you have any thoughts? Well, yes, I, I I'm a great great believer that we 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 have been given incredibly powerful tools uh, to to help people to help. To, to make uh, not just medicine, but uh, tools which have made huge improvements in the quality of life and the richness of life. And, I, and, and a lot of it's just IT, a lot of it's computers. I mean, we're doing, we're having this conversation thanks to mm. modern technology. And uh, thank heaven we had it during the COVID epidemic. Yeah. Um, the, the enrichment of life is quite extraordinary and completely unprecedented yes so that we have tools now brought to us by science which have the potential to enormously enrich life but we have to keep them as tools and i and I, they've certainly enriched my life enormously i love all these things i'm a tremendous enthusiast for them and um and we're lucky enough to be able to have them available but i um um and we can communicate we can get we can get our ideas shared 
but it's all got to be watched because because there's a downside, isn't there? Be, uh, we're all aware that false information is a massive problem these days. So it's it's got to be watched. But we're oh, there's a very very positive side to it. Yeah. yeah. That was very beautifully formulated. So I think that's going to be the last words of this <laughs> okay. conversation. Uh, I'll just ask it at the end here. Uh, usually, recommend to people to buy your book, The Paradox of Progress. So it's now uh, available on uh, in PDF form. If people want to buy it um, on Payhip, I'll put a link in the description. And um, it's it's kind of it's a book that you read it, you have fun, you have some deep thoughts, you get an insight into the world of being a doctor. That That's also interesting in itself. It's very kind of human in that sense. And uh, it lingers on for, for weeks and for months and it comes back and then uh, I'm looking at the notes again and I, I think it's just beautiful and it's in, uh, I wouldn't say enlightening, <laughs> because but it is, it is um, uh, inspiring and it's beautiful and it gives new food for thought. So um, with that, I just want to say thank you so much again, James, for, for taking the time. Well, it's it's wonderful if you say that, Richard. And I, I all I would add is, it's, as I say, it is my baby. And mm. I only want people to read it. I, <clears throat> the only reason to put a price, I think it's four pounds on the website, just because I don't want to trivialize it. But I just want people to read it. I always mm. did. And um, share the, think about it uh, and contribute and change. And... Um, Thank you very much for talking to me, Richard. And then thank you for your insights and your understanding, which is remarkable and very, very valued. Well, thank you mm. so much. And um, hope we can do this again <coughs> sometime as well. And with that, everybody, mm. thanks so much for listening and see you again in another episode. Bye-bye. Thanks, Richard.